Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Namaste, yogis. So excited to have you guys here for another episode of the Yoga Revealed podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Seven Seely. Make sure to subscribe, like, and comment on this incredible video because this interview is with Paul Turner, the founder of Food for Life. He was a celibate monk from the time that he was 19 to 33, and he utilized his energy to really create an organization that looks to actually cure world hunger. And how does he do that? Through serving really beautiful, intentionful vegan meals to literally billions of people worldwide. And this is absolutely incredible because it just shows what we can do when we put towards our dreams and really focus our intentions to really be of service to the world. This interview is absolutely outstanding and I'm not going to take any more of your time. Jump right in, listen to it, and really take some notes because there's some incredible golden nuggets that Paul is going to share with us today. Blessings and namaste. Blessings and namaste. So excited to have you here today, Paul. I am absolutely inspired by what you've done in the philanthropic sector and what you've done in the food and yoga <laughs> union, bringing together this deep understanding that our type of eating, what we put inside of our bodies is so vital to how we're able to produce the best energy in all that we do. So it's a blessing to have you here, Paul. I want to start out just with a little bit of who you are and what your background is, because I know that you were a monk for quite some time, and then you transitioned from this monkhood to creating an absolutely incredible nonprofit, and you're doing so much right now. So I just want to introduce you to the Yoga Revealed podcast and let you speak your truth. Thank you, Andrew. It's a real pleasure to have the opportunity. Uh, namaste to you too. Um, so, 
And in fact, a lot of people don't realize what namaste means, but essentially it's an it's a confirmation or an indication that you recognize the spirit within. So in other words, you're not looking at a body. You see that there's a soul animating that body and you're paying respects to the soul within. Um, in case someone didn't know that. That's you're, key, you're, you're, yeah, exactly. Um, so my background is, well, you know, I was a regular boy growing up in the Western suburbs of Sydney. I'm from Australia. Uh, my accent, I've actually visited 70 countries. Um, so I grew up in the Western suburbs, Western suburbs of Sydney in a housing commission home. We weren't a very wealthy family at all, very average sort of average family, not, not really, uh, didn't have much, but we had enough. We were happy. Um, and I used to play football and chase girls and ride skateboards, just a regular kid. But at the age of 15, I was always a bit of a philosopher. And at the age of 15, I became an amateur astronomer, which is quite unusual back then, considering the environment I grew up in where there was just like drugs and sex and rock and roll and just craziness. Uh, you know, for me to become an astronomer, to look at the night sky and my best friend and I would sit up all night just studying the stars mm. and reading astronomical journals and, and so on. So, and sometimes looking for aliens and UFOs and we were just fascinated by the universe. So that, you know, just re- and again, just regular kids, but that just piqued our interest. So we, we spent quite a few years doing that. And um, that planted a seed of inquiry. You know, we wanted, we, we began asking questions about what is the meaning of life? You know, what, what's out there? Who created this amazing universe? And those answers were not provided to us immediately. But later on, a few years later, we were introduced to the ancient teachings of the Vedas. We came across the Bhagavad Gita and and other yoga journals, and we began uh, looking into reincarnation and karma and all of these concepts, and they were like fascinating to us. So, and when that, you speak of we, who who do you mean? Was it you and a, a group of friends, or did you have a little song? No, it's actually. <laughs> Well, there was a few of us, but really it was my main, you know, comrade in this quest. His name was Jeff Castles, and I still credit him as being my original guru, so to speak, because he was the one that sort of moved me in the right direction um, and got me asking these questions and provided me these uh, ancient scriptures. He came across them by, by chance, and he says, look, check this out. This is some amazing information here. So, yeah, Jeff is uh, still a, an old friend. He lives in Australia. Great, very, very smart, intelligent man. Um, so we began looking into that. And at the age of 19, I had this crazy idea, you know what? And Jeff had the same idea. We ba- actually, both of us become monks. He, he, went, he became a monk first when he was 18 I was shocked, but not surprised. I was like moved, but not surprised because he was such a genuine seeker of the truth. So he was a monk for at least a year. And, um, and then I ended up becoming a, monk, becoming a monk at the age of 19. And I remained a celibate monk for the next 14 years. And wow. during that time, 
Uh, I lived a very regulated life. My initial journey took me to a farm community about two hours outside of Sydney, in the mountains of Sydney. And it was a very idyllic life. Uh, we, we grew most of our food. Even we grew our own wheat and we ground the wheat and made fresh japatis and so on. Um, but it was a very regulated life. We would get up at 3.30 in the morning. We'd have cool showers, never a hot shower. I slept on the floor. I never had a bed. I never used a pillow. Uh, the meals were regulated, like breakfast was at 8.30, lunch was at 12.30, dinner was at 5.30 or 6 o'clock, and then you wouldn't eat in between. You never snacked. There was no question of snacking. Um, and then every day we would chant for two to three hours a day, chant mantras, uh, either personally or, or as a group, and we studied the scripture for one or two hours a day, and we and for the rest of the day we, we worked on the farm or we, we did volunteer work. And my first service as a monk was to be, help to prepare meals and then take those meals to into Sydney and provide meals to the homeless people. So that was literally my first service was Food for Life. Mm. So fast forward 10 years, and uh, I was asked by my mentor then, my senior mentor, to help him set up a headquarters to develop this Food for Life project. Because when I joined as a monk, it was in 1983, uh, Food for Life was a very grassroots operation. It was literally probably half a dozen projects around the world. And it was very basic and it wasn't consistent and there was no real systems in place. There wasn't a consistent messaging and so on. So I actually wrote a training manual uh, to help develop the program uh, in a more consistent fashion. So in, two, in um, 1993, so 10 years later, I wrote the training manual and then I began traveling around the world, setting up food for life projects and teaching people how to cook food in, in large quantities, how to do public relations, how to you know network with the leaders of the community, how to establish a food relief program. Um, and then that took me to the United States where I formally established what we now call Food for Life Global, which was served as a, which serves as a headquarters for this project. And now we have over 200 projects wow. in 60 countries. Wow, 200. Yeah, over 200 affiliates in 60 countries. That's so, incredible. And, and you, <laughs> yeah, so it's, you've, it's how grown. many people have you fed? Uh, to date, 6.7 billion meals. And wow. that's a conservative. <laughs> wow, that's so by incredible. The, by, the end of this, by the end of this year, we'll actually reach 7 billion meals. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in doing so, what has been your, your takeaway in being able to, you know, share food with so many people and what type of meals are you sharing? Yeah, well, they're all freshly cooked. That's one of the unique aspects of food for life is that we only prepare, we only serve freshly cooked meals. So literally the meals are prepared that day, that morning and served to the public directly. There's no middleman. It's not prepackaged or frozen. It's freshly cooked that day. Uh, on top of that, it's plant-based, so it's all vegan. So we don't use any animal ingredients, any dairy, and it's, um, you know, so it's very nutritious. It's prepared with a loving intention because we believe that's a very important ingredient. And this gets, this, this gets into the food yoga aspect of Food for Life, which we can talk about. Um, 
And we can do that because of the scale that we work, we operate at. We can actually feed a child on average. We can provide a meal for around 25 cents, which is quite extraordinary. 25 cents. <laughs> How do you do that? Is, is it based it's upon your of, just really good connections? Because, yeah, it's because of the scale, the scale that we operate at. That's, That's incredible. All. That's incredible. Yeah. And in doing so, what has been your, your desire and, and the real reason that you choose to make vegan meals? And why do you feel that the vegan meals are, you know, more nutritious than say an animal meal? Well, first of all, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that it's way more cost-efficient to provide plant-based meals. So when you're working at such a scale that we operate at, we're serving on average between 1.5 and 2 million meals every day which is also quite extraordinary. Uh, so to operate at that scale, it's much more practical to do it plant-based. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is most people are aware that animal agriculture is the biggest polluter of the environment. So it's sort of counterproductive to serve meat or dairy-based foods when we're promoting like peace and equality and happy world and all these things, when we know that those foods are the ones or those industries which are producing those foods are the biggest polluters of the environment. And secondly, it's incredibly, you know, it's extremely important for us to promote this idea that we're not simply a physical body and that there's a consciousness within all of us. And that consciousness is a symptom of the soul within. So we are literally the drivers of the body or the drivers of the car. And uh, this is what we get from, you know, my life as a monk, the tradition that I, I grew out of, the Hindu tradition, wherein everyone understands that we're a spiritual being, we're all spiritually equal, and we're all going through different physical experiences based on our karma, based on the lessons that we need to learn. So with Food for Life, we don't want to like necessarily um, sort of push people to those ideas because everyone's got their different spiritual perspectives and different religions and so on. But we want people to understand that in essence, they are godly. In essence, they have, they have the qualities of God and they deserve to be respected and they should see themselves more than simply as a physical being. Um, so the food itself is prepared with a very good intention, like a very loving intention, because we believe that the intention is one of the most, if not the most important ingredient in preparing the food. So we're all about not just nourishing the body, but nourishing the body, mind, and consciousness. So nourishing all three. That, therefore, is like complete, you know, uh, complete charity or complete humanitarianism because it's it's getting all aspects of that person's being. Um, and like this I, a little bit more about intention because I yeah. feel that intention is so important in the yoga practice. We find that our intention helps to direct our energy, our prana towards being able to expand and contract. And essentially, I want to hear a little bit more about how you have in weaved intention into this food and like literally cooked intention into the food. And what <laughs> is the intention for Food for Life? Yeah, so the intention is, well, this is another unique aspect of the charity that even when our cooks prepare the meals, we don't actually taste the food while we prepare it, which is very different to what you'll see in an average restaurant 
the cooks typically, as they're cooking, they're tasting the soup, they're tasting the sauces. We never do that, ever. We're always cooking with an intention that this is a loving offering for the recipient. This is not for us. We're not cooking for ourselves. We're cooking for someone else. And to take that a step further, we actually believe that God, there's a personified form of God, and God is the source of all creation. So we're actually making an offering to God. And so when we prepare the food, it's it's really like a spiritual uh, experience for us. We're making this offering. And then only after we offer that food to God by chanting mantras over the food or prayers, then we prepare, we package that food or put it in containers and serve that to the public. So it's a very high, high vibration food. Um, there's a good intention put into it. And essentially that intention is this, a very selfless, loving intention where we, we want to make sure that that person has the ultimate experience, the ultimate nutrition of mind, body, soul. Is there any scientific proof of intention being something that benefits, um, say, you know, food or benefits, you know, the everyday life? What is intention scientifically and how can we actually measure that? Good question. And, you know, for most people, they think, well, this is sort of getting into the area of woo-woo. You know, it's not really based in science, right? But actually it is because there are literally thousands of scientists today that are studying the effects of intention on physical reality. Uh, There's one author, her name is Lynn McTaggart, and your listeners can can research her, Lynn McTaggart. Lynn McTaggart, so I think she's Scottish, um, and she wrote a couple of books which are award winners, bestsellers. One is called The Field, and the other is called The Intention Experiment. And she documents um, the historical, you know, record of literally thousands of scientists around the world and their research into intention and the impact of intention on physical reality. So the short story is that yes, it can be measured. Um, and it does have an impact uh, on physical reality. And we can even have, you know, even if we don't accept that, even in our personal lives, we can, sh- we can see how it impacts us on a personal level. Like if you have a certain mentality, that can affect you physically. So if you, if you're, if you have like a very negative mentality, you're down on yourself and you, you're constantly, you know, coming up with all these negative thoughts, that can affect you physically because you'll get sick. Um, pretty pretty sure you'll get sick. You'll 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 be very weak. Whereas if you feed yourself positivity and encouraging words, inspirational words, that will actually fuel your your physical being, your mental being, and you'll you know you'll you'll be better off. You won't get less chance of you getting sick. That's for sure. Definitely. And with that being said, I want to jump into. <laughs> It's a thunderstorm right now. I don't know if you can hear oh, that, but wow. I just heard <laughs> <it's> a, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm here in Costa Rica, and the weather is wild. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, but essentially, I wanted to ask you, how does that intention tie into food of yoga? Right. So, food yoga is a concept that I came up with about ten years ago. Uh, I wrote a book called Food Yoga. It was eventually published in 2013. It's a bestseller on Amazon, five-star rating. And what I wanted to do with that book is to is to explain to people, lay people, people that are not familiar with the yoga tradition, people that may not even be very spiritually inclined, to explain to them the power of food and how it how food 
can really shift our consciousness, really either raise our consciousness or lower our consciousness. It is an amazing medium for not only bringing us together as a community, it's a great uniter, a great communicator, but it is also a very powerful tool in raising consciousness. So we have a concept in the yoga, in the food yoga tradition, and I got this from my spiritual teacher, um, and that is that spiritual or evolution of consciousness begins when we master the tongue. So if you write that down and uh, meditate on it, it'll, it will um, be very, quite profound in its effect on you. Spiritual evolution of consciousness begins when we master the tongue. So the idea is that the tongue has two functions, tasting and vibrating. So what you speak and what you put in your mouth has a powerful impact on how you perceive the world, your consciousness. You can actually, you can see, you can understand someone's level of consciousness or awareness by what they speak and by the food they eat. It's a very simple way to, you know, to sort of uh, analyze where someone's at uh, mentally, physically. So when you master the tongue, it means that you're very careful about the power of words, that you speak words which are truthful, which are uplifting, which are encouraging, um, which lead to positivity. And when you eat, you always eat only foods which are uh, pure, uh, free of violence. Um, they're clean. They're in a natural state. And all of these things will tend to have a very positive physical impact on your body. I wanted to speak on what it means to have pure food and is this like the Ayurvedic approach, you know, no garlic, no onions? And is this something that um, you feel is really a, a powerful means of mastering the tongue? And like, what are some of the, the key tips that you can give our listeners in really choosing pure food? Right. Well, the first thing to understand is that um, when we talk about purity, we talk about something which is clean of any negativity so that would include physical and subtle like like t tangible things like uh violence which would be uh you know meat products which are coming from the killing of an animal so in other words animals lives that are sacrificed for our tongue that's obviously uh sure you'll get your protein and your vitamins but there is a negative aspect to that type of food because uh, high cholesterol, all of these things. If you eat too many, if you eat too much meat and dairy, it's well documented that these things have a very neg negative impact on the long term on your health. But the subtle aspect is often often overlooked, and that is that the animal that has suffered has, um, you know, there's, there's suffering, there's violence, there's sadness, there's all these emotional energies which also. Uh, in the food itself. So that will affect your mind. So pure food is, is food which is, has the least amount of violence. Um, it is the cleanest in its natural state. So obviously we want to try to avoid processed foods, uh, foods that are denatured. So as much as possible, eat foods in their natural state. Um, it doesn't mean you have to eat a raw food diet, and I have done that. Uh, for two years, from 2008 to 2010, I actually went on a raw food vegan diet at the you know the pinnacle of the raw food movement movement in New York. I used to live in New York. Um, were you, were you going to Jiva Mukti? 
I did all of that, man. I, yeah. I went to all those places. <laughs> yeah, it was like a big fad then. But gradually, gradually, all of those people, um, you know, broke away from that because they realized it's not practical. Uh, for 99% of the population, a raw food vegan diet just doesn't work. But there are exceptions, like anything. And that's another important point is that everyone has a unique biological system. So we have to find the diet that suits us. But ideally, we should always move towards a non-violent plant-based diet as a, as a foundation because that is the food which is um, more optimal for your health physically and much better for raising your consciousness, making you more aware, compassionate, positive, and so on. Um, so, yes, yeah, so a pure food, when we talk about the charity Food for Life, our mission is to unite the world through pure food. It's food which is free of violence, prepared with a loving intention, um, prepared in a natural state. That's the type of food we want to serve people. Awesome. That's such a beautiful mission to have is to bring people, to unite people through food, pure food. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and, that, that, and that's an interesting thing. And that's what I mention to people a lot. It's not about just feeding bellies. We're very good at that. I mean, we can feed more people for less money than any other charity in the world. Um, and we're good at that. And we've proven it. We have a history. But at the end of the day, our mission is to unite the world because we believe that the cause of hunger is not lack of food. It's disunity. It's all of these divisive, you know, things which keep us all separated and disempowered. So what we believe is food has that power to unite people, to bring people around a global dinner table and remove these things which um, divide us. And if we saw each other as brother and sister, like a global family, um, that would tend to uh, lead to things like hunger disappearing overnight because hunger just couldn't exist in that environment. Wow. And so when you say that hunger disappearing overnight, what would it take to really bring food to every single person who is hungry on this earth? Because I feel like there's so many people who have this concept of, you know, there's not enough, you know, this, this limitation and this lack mentality. And I feel like right now more than ever, people are realizing that all it takes is alignment. All it takes is really tapping into the resources and the fact that you're able to feed people for 25 cents is incredible. But now how do we bring food to every single person who is hungry, the people in Yemen, the people in Lebanon, the people you know who are suffering in the Amazon? It's like, like this is such a big undertaking. And, and what do you feel is, is the next step? Well, obviously... Food for Life Global is one of many organizations sort of setting an example. We don't, we're not falling into this illusion thinking that we can solve world hunger by ourselves. It's not possible. You can give us all the money in the world and we can't feed everyone every day for the rest of eternity. Um, that's not the solution. Certainly, we're setting an example and we're very good at it. As I mentioned, we're very cost efficient. We can feed more people for less money. But at the end of the day, it's about everyone embracing this concept of food yoga and seeing how important it is for everyone, every individual to step up and care about their local community, to care about their neighbor, their brothers, and see them as brothers and sisters and make sure that no one within their vicinity, when their local community goes hungry. If everyone developed that sort of attitude and we 
you know, stop listening to the media and the global elites who try to divide us and, and put us into categories. You know, you're, you're black, you're white, you're Republican, you're Democrat. All of these things are just nonsense. They don't, they're not real. We cannot take these identifications with us when we die. They're all superficial. What we can take with us when we die is our consciousness, our awareness. That's the only thing we can take with us. Everything else we have to let go of. So it's crazy how people just hold on to these identities thinking that they're absolute and it's so important that we hold on to it. And they're falling into the trap of disempowerment. These things do not define us. They're just artificial designations and it's simply just a tool that the elites, the media use to divide us, to disempower us. So um, solving world hunger is not the responsibility of any one organization. It's a responsibility of every single person on the planet to start to see ourselves as a global family. Now, I, I often bring up this point. If you're an atheist, uh, that's all good. If, if you don't believe in a divine creator, divine personified energy, divine intelligence, you still have to agree that at a certain point in time, there was an energetic point which from everything came from. In other words, there is one energetic singular uh, event which we can all connect to, which means we're all energetically connected. We have a similar energetic signature running through us. And if you're a theist, as I am, and I believe in a divine creator, based on my research, based on the amazing biodiversity of the world, it doesn't make sense for me that it's just randomly just happened. Uh, and it's the same thing. It's still the same scenario. At some point in time, there was an energetic point where everything sprung from and was ever, creation all happened. So it doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on, we're all energetically connected. We're all a global family or a universal family. Definitely. And did you just say that you're a theist? Theist, yeah. And can you uh, I believe in what God. that is? I believe uh, yeah. I believe in God. So you're either you don't believe in God or you believe in God. So I believe in a personified form of God. I believe that God is a personified energy, a personality, a supreme personality. At the same time, God is everywhere and everything. The example I can give you, Andrew, it's a, it's a really good one, and it's like the difference between the sunshine and the sun globe. Now they're simultaneously one and different. Because you can't have the sunshine without the sun globe, and you can't have a sun globe without sunshine. So when you experience the sunshine in your room right now, uh, you have, I assume you have the window open, the sunlight, if not, yep. right, so everyone has that. So you'll often say, wow, the sun is in my room. But the sun's not really in your room, it's the sunshine, it's the light of the sun. If the sun, if the sun globe was in your room, you wouldn't be around to talk about it, right? <laughs> so in the same way, there is a personified form of God, an energetic source. There's an energetic, and then there's, then there's the energy which pervades the entire universe. So both are true. Both are absolute. So there's, there's a philosophy in India. Uh, there's a, one great saint who... Uh, came up with a way to explain this. And he says that the supreme absolute truth is simultaneously one, but different. So it's one, in other words, everything, we're all godly, we're all God, we're all this energy, this divine energy, but at the same time, we're also individual persons. I'm not you, you are not me. We have a relationship, we're friends. And because there's individuality, that enables us to have a relationship. There's this 
this is uh, you know this tension. This is, tension is how everything changes. Tension or talk or you know uh, friction is how there's movement in the world. You can't have everything flowing in the same direction. So you're an individual. I'm an individual, and because of that, I have an I have um, independent choice to choose to be your friend or not, and that's what makes us unique. Wow. With that being said, I feel like um, I'd really like to learn a little bit more about how you inspire others to take up a pure diet, because I feel that, you know, being able to explain something like the connection of us all being one, but different, it really does bring forth a resonance that we can all be plant-based we can all really choose to treat one another with care, with love, with kindness. And I feel like that's why I chose a plant-based diet and why I've been, you know, vegan for the last 10 years, simply because I've chosen to, to be kind and to, to be loving towards all beings. And how do you inspire this deep sense of inner standing to really explain to the, the other person who, you know, hasn't even tried. Yeah, well, I think the key to that, Andrew, is that we have to embrace the idea that we're not simply just a physical form. You and I, at one point in time, were an embryo. Then we became little babies and we were born from the womb of our mother. And your mother still remembers you as her baby, right? She remembers holding you in her arm and maybe breastfeeding. So from her point of view, it's like you're her little baby, even though you're a young man now. So right here and now in this particular life, you have experienced reincarnation because your physical form has changed, but you are still the same person, right? So you're reincarnating now. So people that deny reincarnation are not looking at things objectively because we are literally reincarnating right now. Our bodies are changing. I'm now a 56-year-old man. I'm the same person, but my physical body is completely different, right? So I'm a unique individual driving this physical form, experiencing life through this physical form. So that's the fundamental thing. You have to, you have to at least get to that point of understanding that you're more than simply, simply a physical form, that you are the soul within, you are the driver. Once you understand that, then you have to project that out and understand that it's, that's the same truth for everybody, for every living thing. Every animal, every plant, every ant, every bug, there's the consciousness, there's an awareness, there's a soul within. Now, granted, the consciousness is different. Their level of awareness is different. And this is all based on karma. So according to the ancient teachings of the Bhagavad Gita, for example, it explains that at the time of birth, based on someone's karma and the, you know their past activity and their desires, they are given a specific form to to carry out their next you know their next life so when someone takes takes birth as a pig for example they get a pig form but along with that they get an they get a consciousness or a mentality uh 
that is appropriate for a pig. So if you were born in a pig's body, you would feel very uncomfortable, right? <laughs> because Definitely. you have all this awareness, you know, how can you, how can you do your podcast with, in a pig's body? It'd be a lot, a lot more difficult. <laughs> so along with the physical form that you're, you're awarded at the time of birth, you're also given a certain mentality, right? So in the human form, it's a very unique opportunity uh, there, according to the ancient scriptures, and even in medi- even in science now, they say that there's 8.7 million forms of life. According to the ancient scriptures of India, they say 8.4 million. So it's pretty much the same number. Keep in mind that the ancient Vedas of India were written 5,000 years ago. So even though it was written 5,000 years ago, they were pretty close to the mark. They said 8.4. <laughs> right now, the current understanding is that there's 8.7 forms of life on this wow. planet. So that's, that's, that's right off the bat. That's quite astonishing that they were, you know, these people are not ordinary. The people that wrote the ancient scriptures of India, they were not ordinary men or women. So according to that, the human form is, is, is a great gift because first of all, we're in the minority. There are way more bugs in the world. There are way more fish in the world, right? So we, we got very lucky as a human. To, to have a human form because we have the opportunity, the ability to philosophize, to ask questions, to improve ourselves. You know, we have individuality. We have so many tools to, to advance ourselves. And it's so sad when you see people that have these opportunities and simply waste them living like uh, an imprisoned animal, uh, eating uh, without any care, um, drinking without any care, uh, just very hedonistic lifestyle, just wasting the human opportunity. It's, it's crazy. And so the karmic future for them is that they will regress. They won't get another human form. They'll actually go back and, uh, you know, take some other form to finish out that karma that they have to, to deal with. So there are 8.4 million different life forms on this planet and in the universe, apparently. Um, and we're evolving through all of them. Uh, according to the, those same scriptures, it says that we've actually had all, we've experienced all of those forms. And it's the human forms like the last stage where we have, this is our chance to get out of this situation, to actually break through of the matrix, to get out of the physical domain and go to higher levels of consciousness, to more subtle realms um, where we don't have to experience old age, we don't have to experience death and disease and all these things which come with the physical form. Wow, that's such a expansive concept. And I, <laughs> I wanted to ask you, um, you know, you said to basically, you know, move on to this higher level of consciousness. And when you speak of that, what do you feel are the steps to ascending in this life to bring forth the, the joy and the, the deep involution of, of being? Yeah, that's a good question. So the, the summary would be, how do I stop reincarnating, right? Yep. <laughs> How do I get out of here? Yeah, so the key is, and this is what we learn as monks, and the key is this, is that you have to be prepared for the final stage of life, which is death. You have to prepare yourself because we don't know when that's coming. It could be tomorrow. Literally, I'm speaking, you to, I'm speaking to you now, but maybe this is my last day. Maybe tomorrow something happens to me and no one knows for sure when that last moment's going to come. So we have to be prepared at every moment of our life for that last breath. And we have a designated number of breaths we're given as part of our karmic um, 
you know, um, karmic sort of lesson. At birth, we're giving a certain a certain amount of breaths for this particular life, and that can't be changed. Now, the way we live out our life, that's we have individuality. We 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 have free choice, but we still have to go through certain experiences, certain lessons. How they play out is is unique to you. So, how do you prepare yourself? You have to understand that whatever you think of at the time of death is going to determine your next body. So your level of consciousness, your awareness, if you're thinking, for example, I give you one example. You remember that guy, that comedian Groucho Marx? Groucho I've Marx. I've heard of him, but I've, I've never watched any of his stand-up or anything. <laughs> yeah, this is, I'm dating myself, but Groucho <laughs> Marx is from the 1920s, right? 1930s. And it was like the Marx brothers. Mm-hmm. So he had glasses on. And part of the comedy was, he was like, sort of like a deviant, you know, he's like always chasing women. But in a, you know, you know, not so gross that you would see, you know, in today's film, but still he was like, like a Benny Hill of that time, you know, Benny Hill, right? Yes. yes. So at the time of his death, he says, he was asked, you know, what, what is your dying wish? He says, give me, let me see a naked woman. That was his last, that was his last wish. He was like an 80 year old man. He says, let me see a naked, a young naked woman. So based on the ancient teachings of the Vedas, uh, it's pretty much assured that he would take birth as a woman in his next life because that was his consciousness. He was thinking of the female form, therefore he's going to be he's going to become a woman in his in his next life. Mm. So you have to prepare yourself for that final breath and be prepared prepared for you know what your thoughts are, what your consciousness is, what your desires are at the time of death. So we have, to, we have to do that throughout our life. We have to cultivate a higher awareness. We have to understand that we're not simply a physical form, that any material things that we have, they're temporary, they don't define us. The, you know, the motorbikes, the cars, the clothing, the jewelry, they do not define us as a soul. Those things we cannot take with us. Mm-hmm. So we always have to define ourselves as spiritual as eternal spiritual beings, godly in quality, and uh, of of a higher realm. We don't belong here. This is simply just a temporary phase we're going through. We, we're experiencing a physical physical life, but this is not what defines us. We don't. We're not meant to stay here. We're meant to move on. Mm, I love that. That you know, we're not meant to stay here. We're meant to move on. And I feel that nowadays there's so many people who are you know, in this delusion, this delusion of, you know, the news and the distractions and the phone and the posts and yeah, there's no real the deep fi- sense of and the photo filters. Yeah. Yeah. All of the, <laughs> all of the distractions. And I feel that, you know, what are, what are we to do when those distractions come up and how do we come back to that spiritual practice? It's challenging because they are they are overwhelming, and um, you know I also use social media, and it's easily to get drawn in. It's very very powerful communications tool. Um, so like anything, it has good and bad features. There's a positive and a negative, and the example often I give is like the knife. The knife in the hand of a surgeon can save your life. The knife in the hand of a in the hand of a maniac can take your life. So the knife itself is not bad. It's how you use it. It's a consciousness that, you know, manipulates that knife. So in the same way, these tools are not necessarily bad. 
if they're used in the right way. If they're used for positive upliftment, for nurturing, for educate, for positive education, that's okay. But unfortunately, for the most part, they're used to push um, negative information. They're used to uh, incite hate and division because that's what actually engages people. That's the sad reality of social media, which a lot of people um, ignore or they, they just want to deny. But literally, the algorithms which drive platforms like Facebook have coded into them um, promotion of hate speech, promotion of uh, division and, uh, and, and, and argumentation because that's what drives engagement. They actually push those, that sort of narrative, that sort of discussion, that sort of division because that's what gets more people engaged, which brings more eyeballs, which means more advertising dollars. That's the sad reality of, the, of these platforms. But in themselves, they're not necessarily bad if they're used in a positive way. So your question is, you know, how do we deal with that? I mean, the fact is they're part of our life, but we have to balance it. So we have to make sure that we have time where we turn the phone off, we put the phone down, we take our shoes off, we walk and touch the earth with our bare feet, we ground ourselves. If you're lucky like me, I live on a sanctuary with my wife. My wife runs the only animal sanctuary in Columbia, South America. So we're high up in the mountains. It's a very pure air. It's very clean, beautiful food. And we have cows and bulls here. So every day I'm feeding the cows, I'm hugging the cows and the bulls, and I'm grounding myself and disconnecting from these electromagnetic pollutants. So we have to balance a life always. It's very important. We can't allow these things to control us. That's the key. That's the key. And uh, with that being said, I'd love you to leave our Yoga Revealed listeners with one golden nugget that you've learned within your time being here. Um, well, I guess what I mentioned before about the idea of mastering the tongue, um, you know, that's something I push a lot. And it's a, it's a big part of the Food Yoga book. Essentially with that book, I was leading people to that to that message. So I had to build a foundation. So the, the beginning of the book, I talk about how any, everything is energy. And I even get into quantum physics um, because I wanted to break things down into their bare elements and sort of prove to people that this is not simply woo-woo science, but this is based on hard data, research, scientific research. So I talk about energy, then I talk about the mind. Then I introduce the teachings of Dr. Emoto from Japan. Yeah. Yeah, so Doki, incredible. So when I read that book, I was like, yes, that's the missing element. That his book actually inspired me to write for yoga because I realized for people that who that are was, not who are not familiar with his book, what is his book called? Well, one of them, the most famous one, is Hidden Messages Within Water. Mm-hmm. So what he discovered was was that water carries intention. Water is actually the, the most important of all the five elements. There are five essential elements which make up everything in this world. Earth, water, fire, air, and ether. Ether is space, the most subtle. Space or ether is where intention is carried. Where It's like the container of all the other elements. Um, so he discovered that water is actually the most important, and it is a way to communicate with God, to share, to... Um, influence physical reality and this of course his his research confirmed the 
um, the teachings of aroma of um, what's the what's the uh, the health modality? Not aromatherapy, but um, with water. Is it uh, water therapy? I'm yeah, I'm with not water, sure. the drops. It's I can't think of the name for some reason. Uh, when people take tinctures of water and they cure themselves. Oh, I've I've never, never even heard of that. You that have sounds heard of incredible. It. I just forgot the, I just forgot the name. Um, but essentially, the idea is is that there's an energetic signature within that water. So they they expose the water to a to a a herb or or whatever it is, and then that then they actually dilute that water. So that physical thing doesn't exist anymore, and it's literally just water, but the water has an energetic signature of that thing, and that's what heals you. So, so when you take that, um, you know, th those water droplets, uh, and I can't think of the word, it's just escaping me, um, that will actually heal you. So mm. his, his, research, his research confirmed that. And so what he, what he did was he took water and he froze it and then studied the crystal structure. Mm. And then he noticed that there was a difference between the water, the crystal structure from water from a very clean environment and water from a very dirty environment. So then, then he thought, what if I expose this, this water to a particular sound vibration? So then he took water from the same source, like two glasses of water from the same water source, and then he exposed them to do two different sound vibrations. One would be like rock music or punk music, which is very agitating, right? And another was like more uh, peaceful music, very, very uplifting music, maybe, um, you know, classical music, like Beethoven. And then he froze the water and then studied the crystals. And he noticed that the water that was exposed to classical music, the crystal structure was perfectly symmetrical. And the water that was exposed to punk rock music or very crazy music was very asymmetrical. It was all shattered. It wasn't symmetrical at all. And he did this in many different experiments. Even one experiment, he exposed water to the sound vibration of love, I love you, or um, thank you, simple things like that. And another, another glass of water, he exposed it to like, I hate you, uh, you are horrible, you're ugly. And again, the same results symmetrical crystal structure, asymmetrical crystal structure. So it's a fascinating read. And that made me realize, my God, this is the missing link. Because in my, the tradition that I was, I grew up in the, the Eastern Hindu tradition of Bhakti Yoga, um, we, we feel it's very important that people get food, which is nourishing the mind, body, and soul. So in that tradition, the food is called prasadam. So prasadam literally means mercy. So it's food that has been sanctified. It's not just ordinary food, it's sanctified. So the, the monks will chant mantras, they'll make an offering on the altar, and then you get the food. And if you go to any Hindu temple, you'll always get prasadam, right? So I believed in that, and I saw the effects of that. When people ate prasadam, I saw a transform, transformation of consciousness. I saw them smiling. They were very happy. They realized that, my God, this is simple food, but it tastes fantastic. It may have been like simple rice and beans, but it was the best rice and beans they'd ever eaten in their entire life because of the intention that was invested in it. So I realized there's something going on here. There's a subtle element which most people aren't aware of. And it was because of the mantras, the prayer, the intention. So I thought, well, I believe in that. I've seen the experience, but how do I explain that to a, 
a lay person to a non you know to a non-religious person and this was a missing link when i when i studied dr imoto's work i realized my god this is it there's actual physical evidence of how intention and sound vibration changes physical reality and that same thing happens with the food that is prepared in these temples when the monks prepare with a certain consciousness and they chant mantras it changes the physical structure of that food so it's not simply rice and beans it's rice and beans which are very very pure and it has a a powerful impact not on the physical body not only the physical body but their mind and their awareness as well so yes yeah, so that's the most important thing in terms of the lessons i want to leave people and that's why i'm so driven to promote this charity to promote the concept of food yoga because i really really believe that that is a solution to a more happy prosperous and peaceful world very well said very well said and i am so grateful for your wisdom that you've shared with us today and for all the yoga revealers who have just been uplifted in their consciousness by your true words of the tongue thank you so much thank you very much and i'm happy to provide a free uh copy of food yoga at least the first two chapters of food yoga to anyone that wants to so you can provide that link on the description wow. of the video. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We'll put it in the description down below. Thank you so much for your benevolence, for your kindness, for your love. And may we all continue to rise above. Blessings to you, Paul. Much love. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this outstanding episode of the Yoga Revealed podcast. I hope that you found some golden nuggets from Paul Turner's absolutely incredible experiences in life and some of his experiences in food yoga. An awesome extra tidbit for you as a listener is you get to check out two chapters of Paul Turner's book, Food Yoga. You can click the links below and have the opportunity to dive right in. I've already read a lot of this book and it is outstanding. So excited for you all to have the opportunity to check it out and blessings to you for being part of the Yoga Reveal community. Thank you so much for continuing to tune in and remember to share, like, and subscribe. That is the way that we stay alive. Thank you so much for your participation. Blessings and namaste. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.